Aaron Lolito here to introduce another episode of Wild Roof Journal's podcast series. This one is a roundtable discussion that covers some favorites from issue 6, which came out in January. I am joined once again by my friend and colleague, Chris Vogt, as well as two members of the Wild Roof Journal review team, Anna Schechter and Phoebe Phelps. All the pieces we talk about here are available to view on the website at wildroofjournal.com podcast. In this discussion, we cover Michaela Edelson's Fallen Furs, Olivia Lee Stagner's poem, The Woods Inside, Victoria Hattersley's short story, The Goldfish, Scout Rue's flash fiction, The Sandwich That Luck Bought, and Andrew Martin's poem, I like the thought of being a lighthouse keeper. Of course, there's many other excellent selections in issue 6, so please do give that a look if you haven't done that already. These selections weren't exactly uh, intended to be a best-of list from the issue. Uh, Rather, the ones that we talk about here offered something we wanted to explore a bit further, or maybe they prompted us with some questions we thought were worth speculating about. Um, So I'd love to continue the conversation. Um, if these pieces sparked some interest in you, and if you have something to add, or maybe even something we missed, you can connect with us on Instagram at Wild Roof Journal. Also, our email is wildroofjournal at gmail.com. Of course, you could find the podcast itself on the apps Amazon Music and iTunes. Thanks for listening, everybody. I appreciate the support, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did having it. get introduced. And Chris, you're up first. Hey, my name is Chris Vogt. I teach English at Erie Community College, musician on the weekends. I've spent lockdown with an 81-year-old father and an 88-year-old dog in dog years. So recent issues and themes on my mind in terms of literature are mortality, death, and the gaping maw of annihilation. Excellent. Uh, Anna? Hi, um, my name is Anna Schechter, and I am a senior at Sarah Lawrence College, and I have spent lockdown avoiding those very um, themes that Chris just mentioned, um, but I have been reading more poetry lately, so that is that has been exciting. Nice. I know there's at least one poem we'll get to today, uh, and then Phoebe. Uh, Hi, I'm Phoebe Phelps. Um, Until lockdown, uh, I was living in Spain teaching English, and then I had to come back here for obvious reasons, and um, working at this journal has made me read more poetry, which is outside of my comfort zone, but I've been enjoying it more than I thought I would, so. Nice. Uh, Perhaps we'll even uh, explore that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, if you listened before, my name is Aaron Lolito. I'm the main editor at Wild Roof Journal. We'll have uh, one essay actually to start and kind of similar to the last round table we did. uh, We'll go around and each uh, offer up a selection. 
and talk a little bit about it, just kind of what, what we like, why we picked it, why it stood out to us, and uh, throw some ideas around, nothing too formal. Chris, uh, you can uh, get started, mention your piece and uh, what, you, uh, what you thought about it initially. Sure. So as usual, I waited to the last second because I'm a delinquent. And I decided to talk about my drastic misreading of Fawn Furs by Michaela Edelson. Uh, Subtitle is called My Backyard. If you're looking this up, so that'll be the title and then an immediate subtitle. And what I did was I was doing this, as I said, at the last minute. And so I read the first five paragraphs. And because it was a little hazy, I didn't see click here to read the full essay. So I assumed I was reading a short kind of prose poem that ended with this line. She's talking about two giant fir trees in her backyard. They are stately, but they're also protective figures. They kind of represent her interest in nature, her environmental interests. Um, the beginning is just her describing in really luscious detail her backyard, kind of like going from the immediate back wall. And then you can kind of feel the distance, the forced perspective of moving further and further into the backyard, exploring different plants and animals, ending with these two giant trees that were my protectors. They were my protectors is the last line I thought of this prose poem, which meant I interpreted the entire thing only having read those first five paragraphs. So what I'd like to talk about is misreading versus reading, because my reading of this as is was pretty profound because it almost had a haiku feel to it. It ended kind of mystically, they were my protectors, was left as, as an open question, protection from what? Uh, why do those trees in particular represent element? What's going on in this person's life that she needs? those two trees in the distance. So I'm filling in the gaps and I'm kind of appreciating the open-ended nature of the ending. And I'm a sucker for a good open-ended ending in a poem and it's left up open to the reader's interpretation. But in doing this mistake, I realized you can also go way too far with that because if you progress the rest of the essay, is a very traditional and well-written meditation on our relationship with the environment and how it's reciprocal, right? We have to protect the environment so the environment can protect us. Not reinventing the wheel, but it's elegantly written. It's um, kind of thoughtful in how well-engineered the pros are. And I was a little disappointed by the second two-thirds. I felt like the mystery of the prose poem that I read, even though that was clearly not the authorial intent, maybe wasn't quite as, was maybe a little bit more potent when I read the uh, second two thirds, which were developments, you know, again, luscious writing, excellent detail, a good meditation on how we have to protect nature so it protects us. And so that just made me kind of have an open question about my own interpretation style. Because if I see something in one context, I think this is a prose poem that's only five paragraphs long. I read it completely differently than if I'd known it was an essay. It's kind of traditional. Uh, length, well-developed, uh, five to ten-page think piece. And uh, so that just made me uh, think about my own interpretation style. Since I've been teaching English for 15 years, I suddenly realized, oh, I clearly misread this. Uh, and the correct reading left me a little bit wanting, a little bit disappointed. That could be just an expectation problem. So yeah, that was my, my reaction was misreading it almost made me like it more than the probably intended reading. And that just uh, made me wonder if other people have had similar experiences like that, where you misread something 
can you find out a more correct interpretation and then suddenly you're left a little bit wanting i would a comparison to another experience i had in it was high school or first year of college um you both all three all four of us have read proof rock yeah love song of jail for proof rock sure yes yeah. that's, that's probably probably a given but if not it's one of those poems you have to read like top 10 most overly taught poems ever and it's all about loneliness isolation i should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas you know loneliness isolation insecurity and i read that entire poem thinking that was about going out and getting what you want and making your life your own and making sure you take charge to make sure you disturb the universe and make your presence felt and when i found out the way most people interpreted again i was sort of disappointed and i actually wanted to keep my interpretation in other words i preferred to keep my incorrect interpretation of the poem consequences be damned I just wondered if anybody else had a similar experience like is there a right or wrong way to read a poem um and if so can you claim a wrong interpretation yeah is that the i might be getting my poems mixed up is that the do i dare read a peach yes and when i'm reading that line do i dare read a peach like ah this is somebody who's old they're worried about their teeth falling out and they're even willing to take a risk then they're still going out they're taking chances they're taking what they want and apparently it's about the opposite of that it's about living your entire life not having taken any of those chances and then winding up at the end looking backwards okay i see um yeah that's that's interesting i think the even just in the sense of the this essay i think you're on to something because i think the the language and especially at the beginning it does have a, a poetic element there so i think you can you could kind of make that mistake if it's a mistake and like you said almost read it like a prose poem and it um kind of works um, I think so yeah well, like the misreading uh, but i appreciate yeah. kind of the mystery the mystery of the the furs and what they represent and she explains very clearly what they somewhere later she uses this line where it's it's pretty clear uh what they represent she says when the two towers fell my two towers still stood so clearly these are something that represent consistency um her family divorce troubled household but here are these two kind of symbols of um something consistent in nature that represents that rock uh, in her life so it it's well written but it's kind of explicit and that you know exactly what the message is by the time you get to the end and i wondered if uh, anybody else had had a similar experience like that where um you almost wished it was more open ended yeah um anna or phoebe did anything come to mind as far as uh either in in this piece or something uh something in the past that you've uh, misinterpreted maybe um yeah well in terms of sort of immediately editing as you start to read something like kind of just like this natural editing instinct comes out and i know i do that with songs a lot because i'll mishear the lyric think my lyric is actually better or catchier and then i always sing it as my rewrite and then people will stop me and be like you know that it's this not that and i'm like yeah but i just have a little bit more fun when it's this so i think it's that it's a similar kind of drive to just i don't know if it's 
being a writer or something that makes you want to, you know, you want to edit, you, you have your own idea of what maybe something should be or could be. Um, but then in terms of uh, misreading, I think that's just kind of the most like just basic, totally going to happen um, human mistake when we're reading. I mean, you know, something is lost in translation and in communication and I mean, part of the beauty of writing is trying to communicate. And I mean, a failure to communicate is not a failure of writing. It just is, I don't know, there's definitely something interesting there. Yeah, and it, because yeah, the, the interesting thing, yeah, the, the message doesn't change or like the, the words um, in the essay or whatever it is, the song, they, they don't change. But yeah, the way you receive them maybe just the context matters in that case. But yeah, I, I nothing like jumps out at me as far as like a poem that I that I read and like kind of misread at first. Um, but I kind of get the same impulse that maybe I might want something to be a little more open-ended or want something to be a little more mysterious because I kind of read the mystery in to a lot of things. And so I, uh, my one example, I guess the, the one current novel I'm reading uh, by Don DeLillo. And I guess that's one of the reasons I'm drawn to Don DeLillo is like, his writing is so mysterious. So I, I just always, you could just read a page and kind of just get drawn in by the language and and, and even aside from the narrative and, and, the, and the plots and different things like that. Um, it's just tripping with mystery, this sense of like foreboding or there's a darkness there. And um, so I, do agree that I would kind of maybe read that in when, um, if you're patient, <laughs> maybe you'd you get to a point where okay, maybe it's not as mysterious. Uh, any any other uh, thoughts on that one? Maybe are you uh, when you taught in Spain? Do you also speak foreign languages as well? Um, yes, to varying degrees of success. <laughs> Depending I, I on the day, you know. It's, I was sorry? thinking about the idea of something being lost in translation. Like, you know, English teachers like to say, "Well, with a poem, uh, the interpretation is up to you. It's totally open ended." But if it's a foreign language, there there is a correct uh, yeah. interpretation. Like, you know, which way is the bathroom, or is it the men's room or the women's room? There's there's a correct answer to that question. Um, <laughs> but there's also this idea that there can be words in one language that aren't easily translatable to another language. Just wondered if you had any, you know, experience with that. Oh, completely. All the time. When I was teaching in the high schools, I had to explain, basically explain to the kids the concept of curse words because they, they put different weight on the words. And so they would learn these words in English and think it's okay to say in a classroom. And the teachers are like, yeah, it's just an English word. And I'd have to say, like, you couldn't say that in America. Mm -hmm. Like, it, there's different, just because you can translate something doesn't mean you can translate the the weight of it or the, what someone else's brain will do with the word. Yeah, I, use, I think I used the word bloody in front of an English person. They were like, that's pretty close to fucking. I'm like, what? No, that's bloody ridiculous. Like, whoa, whoa, easy, Tiger. But yeah, that's, that's fun <laughs> cultural comparative stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that, well, I guess that is kind of a connection is that, yeah, in, in the sense of the, the story or an essay, like the, the person writing uh, has their their own connections to what they want to express. So 
obviously that's kind of part of the interesting part about this whole thing and that's why we do it um, is that we we kind of um, maybe shape it to what fits um, and if we're not careful and like you said if you're reading maybe reading faster um, not paying a lot of attention we just kind of shape it to what we already know but yeah that's a little bit uh, on that one I mentioned there's probably uh, another piece that we're going to cover that's a little bit of a connection. So I think, uh, Anna, that was one of your selections. Yeah, so this is a poem called The Woods Inside. And I was drawn to this poem immediately um, because the because the first word is because. Um, and that kind of beginning to a poem, if it's and or but or just something that brings you immediately into whatever the situation is in you know, with no explanation given, you are just dropped into, well, because I want the words inside, like that, like, there's something so great and so um, kind of all-encompassing of that, like, when, when you start that way, there's, I, I got really excited, um, and then I kept getting excited um, with the inversion of inside and outside, like, just the and then I was thinking, well, inside what? Inside the body or outside of the body? Then I was thinking inside of a house or outside of a house. And it seems that both seem possible. But as the poem goes on, it seems more of, you know, house versus nature and wanting, you know, the woods to be able to come inside. But obviously not being able to make that happen and I don't know I just think there was such a there's such an attention to the details um which is very beautiful and then you got this image of the grave robber rather than you know someone who causes harm so this is someone who you know looks for fallen leaves things that are already detritus things that are already decaying rather than you know, taking anything down in its prime. So there was just something very like peaceful and meditative about this. Um, it made me happy. And it also made me think, yeah, I wish I could bring the woods inside. <laughs> or should I just go outside to them? But would it not be the same? Like, is there, you know, do you want the comfort of inside and the comfort of the woods, but you can't have both at once. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that line i want to i want to yeah. get to that um and it almost i i liked it immediately in the first time i read it well i guess maybe the first time i read it uh this week uh, after looking back at it again uh, it just made me stop after i read it and the line in the third stanza i will not have the hand of an executioner only of a grave robber so that's I, good so when you just kind of like think about for a second and uh, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask: is uh, like, is it is it a good thing to be a grave robber in this in this poem? My reading of it, like, it seemed like a positive connotation, at least in this in the poem's context. Is that what you got out of it as well? Yeah, definitely. Like, it's kind of the you know humane version and kind of the um, not really like interfering. Although it is its own interference, but it doesn't seem as heavy-handed as executioner. You know, it's not hunting. You know, I think of that as like the opposite of what's happening here. Right. So yeah, when it's when it's positioned 
um, next to, not, I guess, not necessarily opposite, but next to executioner, right? It is the more preferable uh, thing to be, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, as far as what it, if there's a literal meaning of it, yeah, it's tough to, like we were just talking about, it's it's definitely an open-ended statement, I think. There's a lot of different places you can take it, and that would be one good place to go with it, maybe. But yeah, that one made me just stop and think for a second. Um, and then the other thing that inside and outside, where you kind of mentioned that in inside is in, in inside a house. Um, I was thinking inside the head, in, like the, you know, kind of carrying the carrying maybe the experience or the imagery, like in a memory or something like that. That's what I, at least that's what I thought of first. Uh, that was obviously the the line where I can imagine the uh, the author writing it, and they came up with that that stanza in particular. Like, ooh, that, that feels good because when I was reading the poem, I'm like this is very pleasant, and I enjoyed this very much. And that was the stanza that grabbed me by the throat. This might be just because of where we are in the current moment. I mean, it, it clearly is because of that. But my the way I read the opening was that the world outside is all inside because it's all in my computer right now. Yeah, and that's just my <laughs> literal experience. Yeah. So it might not be. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. Yeah. I, I, well, that's, there's a three great ways to interpret it. So that's uh, kind of why it's a, it's a simple poem on, on a level, but it, it does kind of offer those different avenues to, to get into. So yeah, that, that's perfect. And that's going back to uh, kind of shaping the shaping the text into your own kind of your own comfort zone. Like I, that's kind of my first approach is like always go like conceptual or go you know go into like the cerebral aspect of it, go into consciousness. So that was of course my first reading of it. But yeah, I like those other ideas. And then yeah, the the fragments. I think the first two stanzas contain those kind of sentence fragments. Uh, and Anna, like you mentioned, that was kind of your initial, um, the initial appeal of a poem. And kind of tend to agree, there's something, you're just kind of placed in the middle of that idea. And it's not too, uh, it's not too hard to grasp or get a, get a sense of, but they kind of make things a little bit askew, I think. Do you know when this was written? Out of curiosity, in case it wasn't formed by the... Uh quarantine factor that's a good question yeah i don't know if it's uh if it's that recent or not could be one of those happy accidents right so you kind of uh or maybe it might be intentional i, I really don't know what this one and i was just going to mention it is just overall the poem for me there's um you know something about it that is kind of comforting in a way even though the, the content of it is a, a little bit unsettling but um, just the conciseness of it is compact. It kind of gets gets you in and gets you out and gives you something that is kind of a, a quite deep meaning or you can at least take it in a, in a deep interpretation. So I uh, definitely like that about it. Yeah, so I think we'll uh, move on to the next one. Phoebe, looks like you're up. Uh, which piece did you select? I chose the sandwich that Luck bought. Um, I chose this short story because I because even after I've read it I'm not really quite sure 
whether we're living in a world, whether it is some sort of speculative work or if the narrator is just supposed to be kind of crazy. And I think it's fun. And I can't find it. Sorry. <laughs> take a, yeah, take a minute. I was looking at it again today, of course, uh, reading it over. And yeah, there's a little bit of, you know, there's like slightly absurdist angle to it. It's not anything too experimental or something that is difficult to grasp, but there's this, you know, slight kind of pleasant uh, absurdity in the uh, in the narrator's perspective. So that's kind of like something that just the, the voice of it can have that appealing quality, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I, um, I like the idea of constantly wishing on everything just so that you can find a penny because they he talks about they talk about luck and like wishes but he never says they never say what they wish on and that they want anything big or spectacular or magnificent they just want like the excitement of finding a penny um which i think is quite sweet right yeah and there's a i guess the idea that's like maybe like practicing it for when you need it or something like that. So yeah. in this like world, there's a, it's a, there's a little bit of a, yeah, like kind of a, I like the, yeah, the, the way you put it, it's yeah, there's kind of a sweetness there. Like I'm going to need this later. So um, I need to, to get my practice in. Yeah. And the, I guess the end goal in this piece is not something uh, too terribly ambitious. It's just saving enough pennies to buy a sandwich. So there's kind of a nice little kind of circuit that works in this one you get. And it's a short, you know, it'd probably be considered a flash fiction. And I think you get everything you need out of it, even though it is a short piece. For me, there was a fork in the road after the first paragraph or stanza, however you want to read it. Um, when he says, after some extensive online research, I discovered most all my earthly problems are caused by weakened luck muscle. And I was wondering at that fork, he could take it uh, towards full satire. And this could be kind of uh, a look at internet health programs and, you know, juice cleanses and detoxes and uh, uh, health crazes and workout CrossFit cults and so forth. And I wondered if he was going to use luck as a way to kind of explore that. And I was kind of pleasantly surprised that it seemed less cynical. I was expecting kind of a full, hard-biting satire. And I might say I was a little relieved when it had that kind of that sweetness to it, um, an innocence and an optimism that I certainly appreciate. Yes, well put. Um, and the, the one question I wanted to kind of throw out there with something like this, and not necessarily specifically to this one, um, because I think, like I mentioned, I think it does what it needs to do in, in a short amount of space, uh, but sometimes, and I, I imagine uh, Anna and Phoebe, some of your commentary at times um, was what I'm about to say, and especially like flash fictions or micro fictions, it just doesn't seem developed enough. Um, so it's that kind of question of when is a, when is a short piece done and when is it just kind of not, not developed enough? And this one I think does, does get us there. Um, I don't find myself wanting to know more about, like, you know, more about his eyelashes or something like that. It's, it's not uh, an experience I don't think a reader would have with this one. Is there kind of a good 
way to know when a short piece is actually supposed to be short? Uh, as your experience as writers, anything come to mind on that? Really, I'm no good at judging since I thought the shorter version of the thing that was actually longer <laughs> was the better version, so I don't trust myself at all anymore. Well, I think specifically with this short story, it only works for me because it is so short and because it doesn't expand more on the world and give us any scene or any other people. It's just him saying, hey, I've got these pennies. And then it's over because then you get to decide for yourself. Like I said at the beginning, you don't really know. Is he in this world where there are like he doesn't show us the anti wishes or the demons. He's just talking about them. You just get little snippets of it. And I think for this piece specifically, that's what I like about it. So if he were to expand on it, if he were to go into sort of like what um, Chris was saying a more detailed scene of how we found things out on the internet, then it would be sort of too much and it wouldn't be as, you know, short and sweet. I don't, yeah. I don't think this works as like the beginning of a Neil Gaiman 400 page novel where he's going to set up the whole no. mythology. In and it's out. That's very nice. Yeah. And I think there's sort of, as um, Aaron was saying, this circular or circuit-like um, shape of it, especially given the title, which I love. Immediately, the title, I, you know, I'm wondering, is luck a person? Mm. Like, what, you know, twist of fate means that a sandwich is lucky? Like, how does that happen? So I was immediately drawn in by that title. And then at the very end, we realized, okay, the luck is that there's another penny in the jar, which is closer to a sandwich. So you've got that full circle moment. And I think that is kind of like one-on-one foolproof way to finish a piece off. You know, every single professor mm -hmm. tells me, if you don't know how to end, go back to the beginning. And I think, you know, going back to the title and, you know, it's, it was, it was a, re a rewarding moment as a reader because I'm like, oh, I get the title now. Yes. And then it's also, it does also have this sweetness to it, which is also satisfying. And you've got like this, these neuroses, but they don't have this heavy or satiric or bogged down sort of feel so that the whole thing ends up being a nice compressed little circuit as Aaron was saying. My uh, favorite line, I don't remember the exact wording, but the idea of humans don't always, adults don't always have object permanence like with a fingernail or a strand of hair. I was like, ooh, ooh that's good. Yeah, I got it. Even fully grown humans often struggle with object permanence. Love it. I know I do. I definitely do. So yeah, I felt I felt seen. Yeah. So the, there are you know as 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 light as it as it is in certain ways. Yeah, there there is that like a little bit of underneath the little glimpse underneath the surface, which kind of gives it that a little bit of sense of depth. Kind of makes it a little more engaging than if it was just kind of a, a feel good piece or something like that. So yeah, a lot of this, but. There's not a single reference to fate versus free will or any heavy-handed heavy language of determination, uh, determinism versus, uh, you know, your autonomy as a human. But it's flirting with all those pretty heavy philosophical concepts. Right, yeah. So I think that's that's what's kind of neat about it. Actually, it might be uh, might be good to stick with uh, stick with fiction a little bit. 
So I think, Anna, your other selection was a, a longer short story. Yes. Uh, so I selected The Goldfish, which I just selected like on an impulse because, again, I was drawn to the title. And then the very first line with this bloody dead fish um, just completely caught me. And I was like, OK, I'm, I'm going to be on this ride, whatever it is. Um, and then the introduction of second person comes next, which further pulls me in. Like now, not only am I interested, I'm actually like part of it. I, there's actually stakes. Like I've actually kind of assumed a role in the story. Um, so this story basically follows Laura and Leah, who are English. <laughs> and basically they have had some sort of falling out and you know it's you know um bad blood is there for sure and it finally ends with a very like simple moment where they do you know uh they do interact again and it's like it becomes this I don't know there's the whole thing feels quite heavy and there's just a lot of inner monologue and overthinking and thinking about the past and thinking about the sleazy guy at the bar and all these things, like what's the retort I'm going to say to him? Oh, I could have said that, but I didn't. There's just, there's so much of that going on and swirling around. And then you get to this ending that is super light and it's just like blue eyes and a little like neat little teeth. And there was something very hopeful about that, that I think I clung on to. And I think the voice was also very fun for me to get immersed in and just Feel. There's definitely some sort of, there's a cynical aspect to the voice. Um, and then there's definitely hurt and loss and wishing things weren't the way they were. Yeah, so I was, I, I was glad to have picked this, even though I picked it first because I liked the first line. <laughs> it feels yeah, good it was, to get rewarded for that. <laughs> there's a lot of interesting going on with this one. Uh, and yeah, just the inner monologue itself. But the yeah, the second person was just kind of a weird. As a reader reading it, even the first time, it just it does throw you off, or it threw me off, as far as who's talking about who. Like you don't know who's even talking, and you don't know who they're talking about at first. Um, so that just the reveal of the two main characters that are involved. One is the the narrator, and one is the uh, the, the friend. They've had a falling out. The narrator had a falling out with um, just those little reveals of the characters seems like quite an accomplishment as a reader when you do get there. Yeah, and it's strange. I don't, I don't like off the top of my head. I don't remember too many like short stories that are kind of so involved in a second person. That seems like a difficult task. If you gave that as like an as an assignment in a writing class, I feel like that would be. Uh, That'd be kind of a mean, a mean assignment. Write a short story like entirely in second persons. I, I've seen people attempt it in writing classes I've been in, and there was definitely a level of mastery to this one that I don't think I've seen in some of the courses I've been in. So I was, I was, in, I was appreciative of it. This um, of of all the pieces that we were supposed to look at today, this was by far my favorite. And uh, yeah, you're you hit on something when you said it's something we've seen done frequently, uh, mediocrely, uh, in mediocre fashion. And I felt like I was in 
confident hands when I was like, well, who is the observer? Who, who's this narrator? Who, who is this person watching? And every time I started to get frustrated, like this person is just being vague to be vague because it's mysterious, uh, the author would drop a hint and say, ah, yes, nice tits. Therefore, the person speaking is a female. I needed that. And so they would drop just enough hints so you felt guided along, but there was enough unknown uh, to keep it appropriately mysterious or ambiguous. And there were a couple of killer lines in there. Um, I liked the voyeuristic feel initially, and I kind of appreciate kind of pre- almost imagine somebody with the binoculars across the street looking and being me, the hopeless romantic. I assumed it was a former lover. Like I guess, of course. Me too. Much. I'm going to see the former lover from 15 years ago, and then uh, as I was wondering, well, is it supposed to be that voyeuristic or this kind of awkward angle? She launches the image of the spider and the cobwebs watching from the top, and I was like, yes, the winner, and uh, that felt good because I felt like I was in confident hands all the way through. Yeah, I think the sort of ambiguity of Laura, Leah, like even those names sounding a little similar, they do become interchangeable, which I think really tells you a lot about the intensity of the relationship that's been lost, whether romantic or platonic, I don't 100% know, but I can happily read it either way. But there's an intensity in relationship that has been lost and almost a losing part of yourself type of thing. That's neat. I didn't think of the idea of kind of the duality or how similar they are, but I thought the ending was pretty definitive. Like I felt very confident. I understood the ending. The only ambiguity was the line, no wonder you left. And the response is, uh, you didn't leave me. Oh, that's the first time where I actually have to do the little mental hiccup. Like who's talking to whom and what did that mean? And so when you get to the punchline, it it wasn't about the goldfish. Um, that it makes it all the more effective, I think, when you get to that final uh, closer. Right. And I was going to mention, too, with the names, as I was just jotting down my notes when I was reading it, I got that, you know, I first wrote down the narrator as Laura, and then the next one as Lee or Leah, and then I had to cross them out and, like, reverse it, just because, like, the, the first name you get is actually the other person. The... The dialogue, there's very few, I think, lines that are like intent or like spoken out loud. There's very few quotation marks. And I think, Anna, you mentioned before, just it's so much of an internal dialogue. You almost feel like it's all the way to the very end. We get just this the actual spoken dialogue is so minimal. And there's so much buildup inside that it does feel like such a relief, I guess, that when you get to that end point. And I mean, it, I'm, I assume we all can relate. I know I can. Just you know, you, if you're weighing on, or something's weighing on you. You have something inside for 15 years that was maybe unresolved, or any amount of time. Five five days would be a long time to have something kind of just kind of swirl around and you fixate on it, and you wonder what ha- what happened, why it happened, all that stuff. So you just get that that kind of uh, swirling inner dialogue, and then very nicely the, the, the simple. Um, simple closure. I, I can guess the answer, but I want to see if I'm right in anticipation of the possible answer. Just uh, thumbs up or thumbs down if you think they get back together. And go. Oh, I'm the pessimist Boy. one. Oh. <laughs> no, this is, this is, I don't know what this says about me. It's some very sad, wishful thinking. I'm, I'm sure it's much more sad on my front, but I felt like that was, a, I was just telegraphed all the way through 
Like, well, that's will be this is the uh, comforting goodbye. It'll be very formal, but also deeply felt on both sides. But not enough will be said. And I think the pregnancy was what the fact that she had a pregnancy that she was still and recovering from physically, which built an entire alternate life that I assume she couldn't break out of. Yeah. So visually, three of us put our thumbs down. But I don't know. I don't know. It's not. It's definitely not like for sure. You just. It's just the sense right. that just that fleeting interaction. Like it's it's positive in a in a way because it's kind of you do get like a sense of resolution. But I don't think it's you know you know and especially when the when the narrator's talking about kind of the the good times or whatever the the, the times they had. Um, they're not going to return to that. You know, it's it's kind of that that idea that you you kind of look back and you have a fondness for those days, but it's not possible to go back there. So the one line, the one line at the beginning I, I like that kind of brought me into that was um, kind of talking about her, herself as a group in, in that second person way, uh, a group of you, none of you with jobs, but yet somehow still able to afford endless drinks, talking happy shit that seemed important and not knowing yet what time really meant. So, I mean, that, yeah, going back to that up during the end, I think that's uh, shed some light maybe on the, on the tone of the interaction, maybe. The only, Go ahead. I was gonna say the only argument I have in my favor is screw it. At the very end, I just think maybe not that there's ever going to be a return to the good old days, but that there's some sort of space open for reconciliation, some space open for a, like there's a little wiggle room there. I think screw it. I was like, oh, my gosh, when that when I got to that line. That, that works because it would be the story is her acknowledging and really thinking intelligently about how she was acting in the relationship. So those long, the line where she, she was apologizing for everything else is her realizing mistakes he made. So that actually does work for a positive reading. And uh, even if it's 50-50, I always find um, poems or stories like this uplifting in the sense that you're looking at somebody who really cared about somebody else and all the details bespeak this level of intimacy that a lot of people can fake in the moment. But if you actually internalize it, it becomes part of who you are. That's a whole different thing. So just the fact of the existence of a story or a poem like this is optimistic in that somebody really was thoughtful and intimate and close and captured those little details and then recreated them. Like that by itself is just an optimistic thought um, on top of my pessimistic interpretation. Right. And yeah, it's, it's definitely not, um, it's not, yeah, it's not uh, something that's really easily easy to put your thumb on as, as far as what happens. So that's a nice, there's enough ambiguity to the ending where it makes for a good, uh, good interpretation session. Um, does anybody, does anybody here know Stuart Dybeck, the writer? I don't think so. He had a little flash of prominence, like in the early nineties, he had like a little peak and then he kind of faded away, but he wrote one short story that all of us writers had a crush on for a long time called Pet Milk like P-E-T, milk, the condensed milk. And it's very similar in that it's just a slice of life and it's a little more literal. It's a guy and a girl who are dating already and they meet in a subway after they've eaten some oysters and basically have a little toward love affair between us several stops. And it's the kind of thing all fledgling writers want to write. Like, oh, I've had experiences like this. 
He clearly does a deep dive into what seems like a pretty mundane love affair situation. He captures all of that nuance and detail. It's like 12 pages long. Like it's a slog to get through. Very good for my top 20 favorite stories, but not top 10. I feel like there's a lot more economy here and there's a lot more sensitivity without the kind of anatomical breakdown of what a relationship is, good or bad. Um, so I think this is actually better than that. And that used to be my favorite of that genre. I was actually going to ask, and I really don't know of a, an answer to this, so maybe, maybe a rhetorical question. But I guess between this one and then the, the one we, we just read, the, the flash fiction, and just the use of voice, because they do have, both of them have pretty effective narrative voices. How does that happen? Can, is there, have you done or heard of or experienced like exercises to practice something like that, practice a skill like that as a writer? I have myself and also had my students try deliberately write the most cliched version of the form. So if you're going to do a second person uh, observer narration, yeah, I might even give them the setup. Imagine you're going to meet an ex-lover uh, and you're standing across the street watching them, but write the most corny, dumb version possible. And sometimes they're hilarious. Sometimes they're actually quite good just in terms of being laugh out loud funny, but it kind of clears the pipes. You kind of listen for cliches. You listen for what a lot of people overdo. And then sometimes you could subvert that. There's some good TV shows that do this where they listen for the pattern and the rhythm of a typical sitcom and they deliberately invert that. So that's, it doesn't always work, but it's a fun exercise and it's kind of low stakes. Write something as bad as you possibly can based on this form. I love that. It's a good, it's a good exercise. Any other ideas? Uh, seems like a, when, you, when you read a piece like that, you know it. And when it's not there, you know it. But it's just struck me that I, I don't really, if I was trying to build that skill in my own writing, I would, I would have trouble doing it, I think. Um, one thing that I've done a couple of times, um, I think it's been assigned to me in two different writing uh, workshop or class style things, is um, put a character in a situation that is bizarre or impossible and keep their tone cool. Or put a character in a situation that is as mundane as it gets and have them all the way elevated. So that like really cool voice emerges when there's a mismatch between what should be happening and how someone is responding to an environment. So if someone's at the supermarket and they're absolutely hysterical, um, like something very interesting and weird um, can emerge. And I think that is how we can start to get closer to real voices, you know, creating voice that is, you know, has all the, the just, weirdness that an individual has um so I, I really like that exercise um i put a character inside the tattoo of her ex and like she's just chilling out she loves it it's her home and um that piece actually got published recently so that was a really good exercise and it came to actually be something so yeah nice yeah so i think the maybe the, the takeaway there is that kind of that level of exaggeration so if you take just a premise, turn that one dial to the 10 and kind of try to leave everything else, you know, leave everything else the same. And just that, that exercise of exaggeration 
not that everything's going to work, but you could kind of maybe pull out a couple, maybe there's a good line in there that you get out of, you know, something that you wouldn't ordinarily do. Um, yeah, and I was going to say, but both of these prose pieces, I think that's kind of the key piece as a reader is that you don't feel like you're reading about somebody. You kind of feel like you're in somebody's head. So that was part of the engaging the engaging quality of these is you don't feel you're just being told about a character, um, which happens sometimes in a, in a short story form. Any other selections to cover? And we can go from there. Were we going to consider doing the visual art pieces that I forgot the name of? Well, the other one, uh, we could at least mention it, uh, that Andrew Martin uh, it's interesting in itself because there was a, a selection of the, the digital art and then he had a poem along with it, which not necessarily part of the artwork, but kind of connected in some way. So we'll at least mention that one. I think, uh, Phoebe, that must have been your selection, right? The other one from you? Um, yes. What was the uh, the appeal of that one? Well, it's a poem and I can't speak very eloquently about poetry and I just liked it basically but I think I liked it because it's there's this wistfulness of, of romanticizing the past and just like very generic images of uh, being a lighthouse keeper when there were candles and shipwrecks and then all of a sudden the question is asked, is there a dark housekeeper, like the inversion of lighthouse? And that can mean so many things to me. And, and to me, because they're talking about the past, it sort of made me think of someone who keeps the past on instead of like the lighthouse on, which might not be like a very close reading, but that was just the general sense that I got from it. I can step in with an assist and do it. I have not read the poem at all, but uh, lighting towards the future of darkness in the past, that'd be a nice kind of queen in the factor of the rotation. So I think you've got a totally solid pieces there. <laughs> and the, and the, just the, the overall symbol of, symbolism of a lighthouse, just the imagery on its standalone, and, and then kind of building off of it, using it as the initial image and then building off of it. It kind of, yeah, in an interesting way, because you get that reversal for, from first stanza to second stanza. Excuse a little bit towards abstraction, but definitely you get those tangible images that are familiar enough to keep everything grounded. Um, but yeah, you get a couple kind of either odd phrasings or just kind of a little bit to keep you on your toes. Um, and then that more rhetorical question, again, it's going to keep it a little more into the abstract going a little bit deeper. Um, what drew me in about this poem is the fact that there's only one punctuation mark and it's a question mark and everything else is, you know, ongoing. And then there's like this question and somehow the question becomes a definitive thing almost because it's the only thing that's ended by punctuation. But I don't know, that just signaled an importance. And I do like the idea of the inverse of the dark house. Yeah, I didn't even make a note that there was no other punctuation other than the question mark because normally that would annoy me i i mean i remember giving the, this comment to you know different different in different feedback situations and in, in poetry 
and maybe it's maybe I'm sound like too much of a stickler, but it's like use punctuation. I when poetry just doesn't use any punctuation normally, it's kind of a turnoff for me. So it speaks to this one that uh, that's exactly what what's happening, and I didn't even notice it, let alone get distracted by it. I think something to do with the rhythm of each line, like they just kind of are like boop 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 that I felt like I didn't need punctuation to just continue reading. And then I hit that question mark and I was like, oh my God, there hasn't been any punctuation. The world's spinning out of control. Like it is. <laughs> so I think, I think, I don't know. There was something very, I really latched on to that question mark for sure. And I didn't feel a lack of there not being other punctuation marks. Right. I'll use this piece as an example of a, a benefit of social media because I, I connected with Andrew on Instagram uh, before he submitted. So uh, I'm, I'm assuming that's where he, he got familiar with us. So <laughs> these days we have to take the positives where we can get them with, uh, with social media. So kind of like expanding, uh, expanding uh, people's artwork and making connections in that area. And we can uh, chalk that one up. Uh, but yeah, that's a good point on that one for sure. So uh, we'll uh, wrap things up here. Excellent selections, everybody. Um, and then we will uh, probably be back at some point with uh, some more of these round table discussions. I was going to start calling them round screen discussions, but I, I decided to double back and just do the traditional round table. Everybody knows what that is. Um, but you know, if that phrase ever catches off in the future, you heard it here first, even though I may not uh, officially use it. But once this is online, it's copyrighted. So if somebody after the exactly. fact that you publish this, you probably 100% have a copyright claim. I hope that's the way copyright works because <laughs> because that would uh, save me a lot of headaches if, uh, if I'm protected <laughs> by just posting something online. Uh, so yeah, it's the, uh, the idea going forward is we'll do some more of these and uh, kind of do more of the interpretive exercises, which are fun in themselves, but hopefully it's uh, more of an interactive experience with listeners out there who can read these pieces or view them and, and have their own ideas and hopefully are enlightened a little bit by what we have to say. Uh, so thanks for joining me, everybody, and uh, we'll talk to you again later. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks.